Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode four of the third crusade called Richard the Lionheart or Richard Coeur de Lion as he was called in French. It may surprise you to know that although Richard the Lionheart is one of the most famous English kings, French was actually his main language and this was because the English kings at this time were descended from the Norman conquerors of England in 1066. There was a pretty complicated feudal system in Western Europe at this time which was actually very similar to what George R. R. Martin depicts in his brilliant Game of Thrones. And so although there were kings of England and France, they depended on the support of the nobility, who were often as powerful as they were. Now, Richard was king of England, but he'd also inherited titles like the Duke of Normandy and the Count of Anjou. So he was also ruler of over half of France as well. Historians call him one of the Angevin kings of England to recognise these substantial French possessions. So what did the actual king King of France, Philip II, feel about this? Well, the feudal system worked so that King Richard owed fealty to Philip for his French possessions. But you can imagine that in practice, Richard didn't think much of that, and there was no love lost between him and Philip. So the scene is set for a lot of rivalry between Richard and Philip as they set off on crusade. And they've also got quite a long way to travel across the Mediterranean to get to the Middle East. And that's where we're going to join them in this episode. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's brilliant History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. On the 20th of April 1191, the French King Philip Augustus landed at the camp before Acre and the English King Richard arrived seven weeks later. Nearly four years had passed since the Battle of Hattin and the desperate appeal the Crusaders made to the West for help. The weary Crusaders fighting on the Palestine coast were so glad to welcome the kings that they forgave or forgot the long delay. But to the modern historian, there is something frivolous in Richard's leisurely and quarrelsome journey to the battlefield where he was so urgently needed. That the French king Philip should not have hurried is easier to understand. He was no idealist and he went crusading merely from political necessity. It would have lost him the goodwill not only of the church but also of most of his subjects had he abstained from this holy adventure. But his kingdom was vulnerable and he was rightly suspicious of English Angevin ambitions. He could not afford to leave France until he knew that his rival, King Richard of England, was also on his way. Prudence demanded that they should set out together nor could either king be blamed for the ultimate delay caused by the death of the Queen of France. Richard, too, had certain excuses. The death of his father obliged him to reorganise his kingdom. Moreover, he, like the French King Philip, intended to travel by sea, and sea travel was impractical during the winter months, but that so genuinely eager a crusader as Richard should have made so little haste shows a lack of purpose and responsibility. There were grave flaws in Richard's character. Physically, he was superb, tall, long-limbed and strong with red-gold hair and handsome features, and he'd inherited from his mother not only the good looks of the House of Poitou, but its charm of manner, its courage and its taste for poetry and romance. His friends and servants followed him with devotion and awe. From both his parents, he derived a hot temper and a passionate self-will, but he had neither the political astuteness and administrative competence of his father, nor his mother, Queen Eleanor's sound sense. He'd been brought up in an 
atmosphere of family quarrels and family treachery and as his mother's favourite he hated his father and he distrusted his brothers though he loved his youngest sister Joanna. He'd learnt to be a violent but not a loyal partisan. He was greedy though capable of generous gestures and he liked a lavish display. His energy was unbounded but in his fervent interest in the task of the moment he would forget other responsibilities. He loved to organise but was bored by administration. It was only the art of warfare that could really hold his attention as a soldier. He had real gifts, a sense of strategy and of tactics and the power to command men. He was now aged 33 in the prime of life, a figure of glamour whose reputation had travelled east before him. In contrast, the French king, Philip Augustus, was very different. He was eight years younger than Richard, but he'd been king for over ten years already, and his bitter experience had taught him wisdom. Physically, he was no match at all for Richard. He was well built with a shock of untidy hair, but had lost the sight of one eye. He was not personally courageous. He was often bad-tempered and self-indulgent, but he could cloak these passions. Neither emotionally nor materially did he like ostentation. His court was dull and austere. He didn't care for the arts, nor was he well educated, though he knew the value of men of learning, and sought their friendship from policy and kept it by his wit and his pithy conversation. As a politician, he was patient and observant, cunning, disloyal and unscrupulous. But he had an overriding sense of his duties and responsibilities. For all his meanness to himself and his friends, he was generous to the poor and protected them from their oppressors. He was an unattractive, unlovable man, but a good king. Amongst the Franks of the East, he enjoyed a special prestige, for he was overlord of the families from which almost all of them had sprung, and most of the visiting crusaders were directly or indirectly his vassals. But they were better able to appreciate King Richard with his courage, his knightly prowess and his charm. And to the Saracens, Richard seemed by far the nobler, the richer and the greater of the two. The two kings had set out together from Vézelay on the 4th of July 1190. Richard had already sent the English fleet ahead to sail round the coast of Spain and meet him at Marseille, but almost all the land forces of his dominions were with him. In contrast, Philip's army was smaller, as many of his vassals had already left for the east. The French army, followed closely by the English, marched from Vézelay to Lyon. There, after the French had crossed the bridge over the Rhone, it broke under the weight of the English crowds. Many lives were lost and there was some delay before transport could be arranged. Soon after leaving Lyon, the king's party company, Philip went southeast across the Alpine foothills to strike the coast near Nice, and then along the coast to Genoa, where ships awaited him. Richard made for Marseille, where his fleet joined him on the 22nd of August. Its voyage had been uneventful, apart from a short delay in Portugal in June, where the sailors had helped King Sancho to repel an invasion by the Emperor of Morocco. From Marseille, some of Richard's followers, under Baldwin of Canterbury, set sail directly for Palestine, but the main army embarked in various convoys for Messina in Sicily, where it was proposed to join up again with the French. It had been at the suggestion of King William II of Sicily that the kings of France and England, when their joint crusade was first planned, decided to assemble their forces in Sicily. But King William had died in November 1189. He'd married Richard's sister, Joanna of England, but the marriage was childless and his heir was his aunt Constance, the wife of Henry of Hohenstaufen, Frederick Barbarossa's eldest son. To many of the Sicilians, the idea of a German ruler was repugnant. A short intrigue backed by Pope Clement III, who was 
alarmed by the prospect of the German Hohenstaufens controlling southern Italy, brought to the throne in place of Constance and Henry a bastard cousin of the late king, who was called Tancred, Count of Lecce. Tancred was an ugly, unimpressive man who almost at once found himself in difficulties. There was a Muslim revolt in Sicily and a German invasion of his lands on the mainland, and the vassals that had elected him began to change their minds. Tancred was obliged to recall his men and ships from Palestine, and thanks to them he defeated his enemies. But though he was ready to receive the crusading kings with honour and to assist them with provisions, he was in no position to accompany them on the crusade. King Philip left Genoa at the end of August and after an easy voyage down the Italian coast arrived at Messina on the 14th of September. Hating pomp, he made his way into the town as unobtrusively as possible, but on Tancred's orders he was received with honour and lodged in the royal palace there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. King Richard decided to travel by land from Marseille. He seems to have disliked sea voyages, doubtless because he suffered from seasickness. His fleet conveyed his army to Messina and anchored off the harbour to await him, while he, with a small escort, took the road along the coast through Genoa, Pisa and Ostia to Salerno. He waited until he heard that his fleet had arrived at Messina and then, it seems, sent most of his escort by ship to Messina to prepare for his arrival. He himself continued on horseback with only one attendant. When he passed near the little Calabrian town of Mileto, he tried to steal a hawk from a peasant's house and was very nearly done to death by the furious villagers. He was therefore in a bad temper when he reached the Straits of Messina a day or two later. His men met him on the Italian shore and conveyed him in pomp to Messina, where he landed on the 3rd of September. The lavish grandeur of his entry was in sharp contrast with that of Philip's modest arrival. As he passed through Italy, King Richard had learned of many things that displeased him about Tancred. The most important of these was that his sister Joanna, who was married to Tancred and of whom he was very fond, was being kept in confinement and her dowry was withheld from her. She had some influence in the kingdom and Tancred clearly didn't trust her. Moreover, William II had left a large legacy to his father-in-law Henry II, consisting of gold plate and gold furniture, a silk tent, two armed galleys and many sacks of provisions. As Henry was dead, Tancred proposed to retain them for himself. From Salerno, Richard had sent Tancred to demand the release of his sister and the cession of her dowry and the legacy. These demands, followed by news of Richard's behaviour in Calabria, frightened Tancred. He saw to it that Richard was lodged in a palace outside the walls of Messina, but to conciliate him, he sent Joanna with a royal escort to join her brother and open negotiations about money payments instead of the dowry and legacy. 
King Philip, whom Richard had visited two days after his arrival, offered his friendly offices to Tancred, and when Queen Joanna went to pay her respects to him, he received her so cordially that everyone expected to hear of their forthcoming marriage. But Richard was not in a conciliatory mood. First he sent a detachment across the Straits to occupy the town of Bagnara on the Calabrian coast and installed his sister there. Then he attacked a small island just off Messina, where there was a Greek convent. The monks were brutally to give place to his troops. The treatment given to these holy men horrified the people of Messina, who were mainly Byzantine Greeks, while the wealthier citizens were enraged by the conduct of the English soldiers towards their wives and daughters. On the 3rd of October, a quarrel in a suburb between some English soldiers and a group of citizens led to a riot. A rumour spread through the town that Richard intended to conquer the whole of Sicily, and the gates were closed against his men. An attempt by his ships to force the harbour was repulsed. The French king Philip hastily summoned the Archbishop of Messina and Tancred's Admiral Margaritas and the other Sicilian notables in the town to his palace and went with them next morning to pacify Richard at his headquarters outside the walls. Just as it seemed that some arrangement would be made, Richard heard some of the citizens collected on a hill outside the windows hurl insults against his name. In a fury, he left the assembly and ordered his troops to attack once more. This time the citizens were taken by surprise. In a few hours the English soldiers had captured Messina and had pillaged every quarter except for the streets by the palace where the French King Philip was lodged. Margaritas and the other notables barely had time to escape with their families. Their houses were seized by Richard. The Sicilian fleet anchored in the harbour was burnt by afternoon. The standard of the English Angevins floated over the town. Richard's truculence did not end there. Though he agreed to let King Philip's standard float next to his own, he forced the citizens to give him hostages against the king's good behaviour and announced that he was ready to take the whole province. Meanwhile, he constructed a great wooden castle just outside the town to which he gave the scornful name of Matagriffon, meaning the curb on the Greeks. Philip was disquieted by this example of his rival's temper. He sent his cousin, the Duke of Burgundy, to find King Tancred at Catania to warn him of Richard's intentions and to offer him help if worse were to follow. Tancred was in a genuinely difficult position. He knew that Henry of Hohenstaufen was about to invade his lands and he knew that his own vassals were trustworthy. A rapid calculation decided him that Richard would actually be a better ally than Philip. Philip was unlikely to attack him now, but the kings of France were on good terms with the Hohenstaufens, and Philip's future friendship was uncertain. In contrast, Richard, who was of course the greatest present menace, was known to dislike the Hohenstaufen, who were the enemies of his wealth cousins. So Tancred rejected the French offer of help and entered into negotiations with King Richard. He offered him 20,000 ounces of gold in lieu of the legacy due to Henry II and Joanna the same sum in lieu of her dowry. This worked, for Richard's anger could usually be calmed by the sight of gold. He accepted the offer on his own and his sister's behalf, and further agreed that his young heir, Arthur, Duke of Brittany, should be betrothed to one of Tancred's daughters. Peace was restored, and on the advice of the Archbishop of Rouen, Richard grudgingly gave back to Margaritas and the other leading citizens of Messina the goods that he had confiscated. The French king Philip had been outwitted by Richard, but he made no public objection. On the 8th of October, while the treaty was being drawn up, he and Richard met once more to discuss the future conduct of the crusade. Rules were made about the price control of foodstuffs, serving men were bound to their masters, a half of every night's money was to be devoted to the needs of the crusaders, gambling was forbidden, 
forbidden except to knights and clerks, and if they gambled excessively, they were to be punished. Debts contracted on the pilgrimage must be honoured. The clergy gave sanction to the regulations promising to excommunicate offenders. It was easy for the kings to agree on such matters, but there were political questions that were less readily settled. After some discussion, it was agreed that future conquests should be held equally between them. A more delicate problem concerned King Philip's sister Alice. This unfortunate princess had been sent as a child years before to the English court to marry Richard or another of King Henry's II's son. Henry II had detained her in spite of Richard's unwillingness to agree to the proposed marriage. Soon there had been ugly rumours that Henry was too intimate with her himself. Richard, whose own taste didn't lie in the direction of this marriage, refused to carry out his father's arrangement in spite of Philip's reiterated demand. Nor would his mother, Queen Eleanor, now that Henry's death had freed her from restraint, see her favourite son tied to a member of a family that she hated and one whom she believed to have been her husband's mistress. With the interests of her native Guyenne at heart, she determined to marry him to a princess of Navarre and he accepted her choice. So when Philip brought up again the question of Alice's marriage, Richard refused to consider it, giving Alice's reputation as his reason. Philip was quite indifferent to his family's happiness. He never intervened to help his miserable sister Agnes, the widow of Alexius II of Byzantium. But the insult was hard to bear. His relations with Richard grew still chillier and he planned to leave Messina at once for the east. But the day after he sailed, a great tempest drove him back to Sicily. As it was now mid-October, he decided that it would be better to winter at Messina, which had always been Richard's intention. The winter passed quietly enough in Sicily and as spring came near, the kings prepared to resume their journey. Richard went to Catania to visit Tancred, with whom he swore a lasting friendship. Philip was frightened by this alliance and joined them at Teomina. He was ready now to patch up all his disagreements with Richard and formally declared him free to marry whomsoever he chose. It was in an atmosphere of general goodwill that Philip sailed with all his men from Messina on the 30th of March, and Richard also left Messina on the 10th of April. French fleet made a good passage to Tyre, where Philip was gladly welcomed by his cousin Conrad of Montferrat. He arrived with Conrad at Acre on the 20th of April. At once, the siege of the Muslim fortress was tightened. To Philip's patient and ingenious temperament, siege warfare was attractive. He reorganised the engines of the besiegers and built towers for them, but an attempt to assault the walls was postponed until Richard and his men arrived. But Richard's voyage was much less peaceful. Strong winds soon separated his fleet. The king himself put him for a day at a Cretan port, from which he had a tempestuous passage to Rhodes, where he stayed for 10 days, 22nd of April to the 1st of May, recovering from his seasickness. Meanwhile, one of his ships was lost in a storm, and another three, including the ship carrying Joanna and Berengaria, were swept onto Cyprus. Two of the ships were wrecked on the south coast of the island, but Queen Joanna was able to reach an anchorage off Limassol. Cyprus had for five years been under the rule of the self-styled Byzantine Emperor Isaac Ducas who'd led a successful revolt against Byzantium at the time of Isaac Angelus's accession and who'd maintained his independence by volatile alliances now with the Sicilians, now with the Armenians of Cilicia and indeed even with Saladin. He was a bad-tempered man who hated the Crusaders and he wasn't popular on the island owing to the exorbitant taxation that he raised. The appearance of the Crusader fleets in Cypriot waters panicked him into some bad decisions. 
when Richard's shipwrecked men made their way ashore, he arrested them and confiscated all the goods that could be salvaged. Then he sent a messenger to Queen Joanna's ship, inviting her and Berengaria to land. Joanna, who'd learned from experience of her value as a potential hostage, replied that she couldn't leave the ship without her brother's permission, but her request to be allowed to send ashore for fresh water was rudely refused. Indeed, Isaac came himself to Limassol and built fortifications along the shore to prevent any landing. On the 8th of May, a week after Joanna's arrival at Limassol, Richard and his main fleet appeared. It had undergone a ghastly passage from Rhodes and Richard's own ship had narrowly escaped destruction in the Gulf of Italia. Seasickness hadn't improved Richard's temper and when he heard of the treatment given to his sister and his betrothed, he vowed vengeance. Once he began to land men near Limassol and march on the town, Byzantine ruler Isaac made no resistance but retired to the village of Killarney on the slopes of Trudos. Not only did the Latin merchants settled in Limassol welcome Richard, but the Byzantines, in their dislike of Isaac, showed themselves friendly to the invaders. Isaac therefore said that he was ready to negotiate. On receiving a safe conduct, he came down to Colossae and went on to Richard's camp. There he agreed to pay compensation for the goods that he'd stolen to allow the English troops to buy provisions free of customs and to send a token force of a few hundred men to the crusade, though he refused to leave the island himself. He offered to send his daughter to Richard as a hostage. Isaac's visit to the camp convinced him that Richard was not quite as formidable as he thought, so as soon as he returned to Colossae, he denounced the agreement and ordered Richard to leave his island. He had made a foolish mistake, for Richard had already sent a ship to Acre to announce his approaching arrival in Cyprus, and on the 11th of May, the day that Isaac saw Richard and returned to Colossae, ships put in at Limassol with all the leading crusaders opposed to Conrad on board. There was King Guy and his brother, Geoffrey, Count of Lusignan, one of Richard's leading vassals in France. There was Beaumont of Antioch with his son Raymond. There was the Rupinian Armenian Prince Leo, who had recently succeeded his brother. There was Humphrey of Turon, Isabella's divorced husband, and there were many of the leading Templar knights. As Philip had taken Conrad's side, they'd come to secure Richard's support for their party. This accession of strength decided Richard to undertake the conquest of the whole of Cyprus. His visitors doubtless pointed out to him its strategic value for the defence of the whole Syrian coast and the danger that might follow should Isaac enter into too close an alliance with Saladin. It was an opportunity too good to be missed. The Byzantine ruler Isaac fled, hoping that his four great castles in the north of Cyprus could hold out until Richard tired of this petty war and sailed away. But one by one they fell to the English. Isaac lost his nerve and made an unconditional surrender. He was taken before Richard, bound in silver chains. By the end of May, the entire island was in Richard's hands. The booty that Richard obtained was huge. Isaac had amassed a vast treasure by his extortions, and many of his notables bought their new master Richard's goodwill by making lavish donations to him. Richard soon made it clear that his chief interest was money. A 50% capital levy was taken from every Byzantine Greek inhabitant, but in return Richard confirmed the laws and institutions of the island. Crusader garrisons were installed in all the castles of the island, and two Englishmen, Richard of Camville and Robert of Turnham were appointed justiciars and given charge of the administration until Richard should decide its ultimate fate. The Byzantine inhabitants soon found their pleasure in Isaac's fall was ill-founded, for they had no more part in their government, and as a symbol of their new subservience, they were ordered to shave off their beards. To Richard himself, the conquest of Cyprus seemed of value because of the unexpected 
riches that it brought him, but in fact it was the most far-sighted and the most enduring of all his achievements on the crusade, for the possession of Cyprus by the crusaders would greatly help their lands in Syria, and their establishments on the island outlasted those in Syria indeed by two centuries. But it boded ill for the Byzantines. If crusaders were ready and able to annex a Byzantine province, would they not be tempted soon to launch the long-desired holy war against Byzantium itself? And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on the podcast. And if you wanted to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, you'd be doing me a massive favour. Thanks so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear more about what happened when Richard and Philip finally arrived in the Holy Land. <laughs>